Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello. Welcome back. Chase Thomas podcast. Taping this on a Tuesday afternoon. First timer, one of my all-time favorite NFL writers is here. It's wild. No, you're not watching the Peter King podcast, but you should if you're not already. No, you're not watching Football Night in America. No, you're not watching the Dan Patrick Show. No, you're watching the Chase Thomas podcast with Peter King. Peter, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Hey, good to be on with you, Chase. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, My first question for you, Peter. Um... Hardest column for you to put together this season thus far has been which one? Uh, well, I'm going to tell you what the easiest column for me to mm-hmm. put up or to put together, but it was difficult just to come to the conclusion that it had to be written. Hmm. And that was the column where I excoriated Jimmy and D Haslam for uh, trading for and signing Deshaun Watson to a ironclad 230 million guaranteed contract. And um, I thought it was a terrible message to send before you even knew everything about that story. Uh, And I didn't think that it was remotely appropriate to be making a decision like that for your franchise. Now, I understand exactly why they did it. They weren't getting Deshaun Watson to come to Cleveland if they did not fully guarantee that contract, period. It's obvious. So then I wouldn't have signed him. And so that was... It was an easy column to write, but it probably took me three days going back and forth or two days. I'm sorry, going back and forth and writing and making sure that I really worded it exactly the way I wanted it to be. But I would say that was that to me was the most notable column just from the standpoint that sometimes you have to go out on a little bit of a ledge in this business and write the very hard truth. Do you enjoy writing just as much as you did when you first started? Um, I would say probably not as much. Uh, and, And it has to do with the fact that when I was getting started in this business, I got my first sports writing job. I was 22 years old uh, at the Cincinnati Inquirer. And uh, every day when I woke up, I felt like I was the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Can you believe it that this sports staff with these incredible writers on it, uh, that they want me to work there? And so it's... It isn't that I don't like my job. I absolutely love my job. But I don't think anything can quite match the idealism, the love of the game, basically, that you have uh, when you first get into this business. I mean, and in those days, it was so, so, so different. Um, you know, I at, at one point, 
when I was there, I was the backup beat writer on the Cincinnati Reds. It was the end of their great dynasty. Um, and one day I was in St. Louis covering the team on a road trip. It was at the old Bush Stadium and across the street, there was a Marriott Hotel. And I was in the lobby and Johnny Bench, the, the Hall of Fame catcher saw me. And he literally said, hey kid, what are you doing tomorrow morning? And I said, nothing. He goes, want to come out and shag for us? We're going to take extra hitting at 10 o'clock. I said, yeah. So I went out and for two hours on a broiling hot July, I think it was <laughs> July day, um, I shagged baseballs all over the outfield with Johnny Bench and a couple of young guys on the Reds hitting. And that was so, I mean, look, I was a kid who grew up loving baseball. So that's a day, honestly, I'll never forget. And so it was, I, I, I've had a lot of fun over the years in this job. Do you still prefer baseball over football? Well, in some ways, yes, because baseball is my leisure. Yeah. Football is my job. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I went to a World Series game last week in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I go to a World Series game almost every year. And it's just one of those days that I really look forward to because it's in the middle of the football season. And on the day that I go to a World Series game, all I have to think of is keeping a pristine scorecard because I keep scoring every game I go to. So I love it. That, that is really enjoyable to me. Uh, I love baseball, but I love football too. Um. Do you have the same writing process that you follow day every day? Do you have something where you're like with your office, you have to be starting at a certain time, certain thing to drink, th certain certain habits that you have that you stick to? Well, what I write now, because over the last four years, I've, I'm only responsible for one thing every week, and that's mm. my Football Morning in America column. Um, that comes out every Monday. It's about ten to 12,000 words every week. So it's not something you just do in one day. Mm -hmm. And my process essentially is that I try to do the non-deadline, non-football things, really try to get that done by end of day Friday. Myron Cope, the old Pittsburgh broadcaster, had this little habit that he used to call collecting shirt pocket notes. And what he did was anytime he heard something or he thought of something, he would write it on a piece of paper and put it in his shirt pocket. Well, in these days, it's a little bit different. I take this thing <laughs> and every day when, for those who were just listening, not watching, I'm holding up my iPhone mm -hmm. and I take notes on my iPhone and I just kind of wake up on maybe Thursday afternoon or at the latest by Friday morning and say, okay, got to get to work now and sort of download my brain and start writing some stuff for the column that isn't going to be deadline-y Sunday stuff. Mm. So I try to get that done end of day Friday or at the absolute latest by Saturday morning. And then I pretty much just concentrate. I make a bunch of calls on Saturday to to take the temperature of some things that are going on around the league. Um, then I put on uh, the red zone channel on Sunday and one other game that I'll want to keep concentrating on in that early one o'clock Eastern time window. And I'll just watch 
for three hours and I'll try to make sure that I take a bunch of notes and then in middle of the fourth quarter, I'll make four or five phone calls to PR guys or I will just text coaches or players who I know I want to talk to after the game. And, um, you know, this past weekend, um, I texted the PR guy of the Jets, said I really like to get Robert Sala. I ended up getting him. Uh, I got the Vikings to get me Kirk Cousins. I got that young kid who caught Brady's touchdown pass, Kate Otten, um, his first touchdown pass, Brady's 720th. And then uh, I got Dan Campbell of the Lions. So, I mean, I try to watch the games and I always try to think, what will people be talking about Monday morning? I want to write something at the top of my column every Monday that a football fan in Laredo, Texas, or, uh, you know, Kankakee, Illinois, Bainbridge Island, Washington, Portland, Maine, uh, Bethany Beach, Delaware, that any of those people will say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to read some more about what in the world are the Jets doing? Are they actually any good? So those are that's what I try to ask myself as I'm watching the games on Sunday. Do you think it's good for the NFL to have a super active NFL trade deadline that we saw this year? Do you think that would be good for that to be the the new norm, kind of like what the NBA is and Major League Baseball, where a lot of big name players are moved and maybe next year you see a big time quarterback move midseason? Do you think that's something the NFL should want? I think the NFL should want it. The NFL definitely does want it. There's a guy who was the longtime vice president of communications for the NFL. He's retired now. His name is Joe Brown. Mm. And in the 80s, he became very kind of jealous of baseball because baseball had a hot stove league in the offseason. And what mm. that means is that even when baseball ended for two months, everybody was talking about it. Hey, who are the Yankees going to trade for? Who are the Braves going to trade for? Who's Texas going to sign in free agency? Who, you know, so there was always something happening. And the NFL really has imitated that. The NFL has made big news out of everything now. The mm -hmm. trading deadline, three full days of the draft, the release of the schedule is a big story. And the combine has become a mega story. The start of free agency has become a big story. So the NFL basically has said to the sports world, no time is dead time on the NFL calendar. It's a little bit exhausting sometimes, but knowing that there's really only about six or seven weeks every year that there's truly nothing going on from about June 5th, to July 20th, when there's really nothing going on. But the NFL has created a monster and uh, they've gotten the media to cover it. What happens with Mac Jones and uh, Bailey Zappi the rest of the way? Can you repeat that, Chase? Uh, what happens with Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi the rest of the way? Good question. Very good question. Bill Belichick is going to play the guy he thinks gives him the best chance to win. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but he's truly the only coach who behaves that way in the mm -hmm. NFL. The only one. Could you ever see John Harbaugh benching uh, Lamar Jackson 
I can't see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless something really, really weird happens. I'm not, I'm not saying that John Harbaugh doesn't have the guts to make a tough decision. Don't get me wrong. But what I am saying is that Bill Belichick lives by that credo, by that ethos. And if Mac Jones struggles, he's going to put Zappi in the game. I think Bailey Zappi is a very, very interesting story from the standpoint that it looks like he came out of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. Fourth round pick out of Western Kentucky. But anybody at any level of football who's thrown 64 touchdown passes in one year, anybody, I don't care what level it is, uh, you know, that is going to get respect from people in the business. And that got Bill Belichick's attention. And I fully believe that Belichick is going to uh, not be afraid if he has to. Mac Jones has not played well this year, period. You can't look back at many great moments that he's had. And I'm Bill Belichick doesn't know whether Bailey Zappi is the guy. But I do think I will not be surprised if uh, one of these games he just calls for Zappi and, and benches Jones and who knows for how long. I'm curious with the way Bill Belichick is wired where something you hear all about a lot of folks who grinded and grinded and grinded and then they get to the top. They talk about missing the daily grind. They, they miss the building aspect of it. They miss what it was. It kind of speaks to what you were talking about when you were first getting into the business and just that eagerness and just um, it, just the the feeling. You're like you're at the start of something you were. Uh, it was just so cool to always be around this thing and this thing you always wanted to do. And there's just so much energy. Uh, do you think Be Belichick has looked at the post Tom Brady years fondly where like he's energized, he's hit this other when people are like, oh, is he going to walk away? It's like, no, he gets to do this thing that he gets to start over. He was just contending year over year and he had already built the juggernaut. He has to now redo it. Do you think he finds more, maybe joy is not the right way of looking at it, but do you think he's wired the way where it's more fun for him to go to the office now. Cause he's like, this is hard. I've got to really work this out. This is hard for me to be Josh Allen Mills. You have, you know, you've discovered the seeds of Bill Belichick's greatness. Mm -hmm. He loves the little crap that probably a lot of people are sick of. He loves it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Chris Sims of NBC who, Worked for the Patriots, I think, for like 16 months when he got out of football and was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. Um, he was offensive quality control guy. And he told me a story once that it was Mother's Day weekend and Bill didn't even realize that it was Mother's Day weekend. And at one point, guys on his team, because he asked, he told everybody, well, here's what we're doing this weekend, blah, blah, blah. And somebody said, hey, Bill, Sunday's Mother's Day. We got to we gotta take our wives out or whatever. He said, oh, geez, I'm sorry. And he obviously gave everybody Mother's Day off. Uh, but I only bring up that story because not to say, oh, he's either shut off from the rest of the world, which honestly most football coaches are. But Sims has a very interesting way of looking at Belichick. And that is, he said that he has the exact same attitude, approach, ethos 
on May 11 as he would have on October 11. Hmm. He could be playing the biggest game of his year and there would be nothing that would look any different. Now, Chase, I want you to think back, okay? I want you to think back to when you were about, when you were, whatever, however old you were, <laughs> that New England was playing Seattle in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. okay? And do you remember toward the end of the game, in the last minute and a half of the game, that the Seattle was down at the one and a half yard line and the clock was running. And everybody is saying, Bill, they're going to score a touchdown. You got to start calling your timeouts. You want to give Brady some time after they score. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you got to be aware of the scoreboard. Belichick just stood there, just letting the clock go, letting the clock go. And everybody, I remember I was in the press box. I'm saying, what is Belichick doing? Mm-hmm. Turns out he knew exactly what he was doing. And what he was doing is he was turning the tables on the Seahawks, putting the pressure on them, making them hurry because mm-hmm. the Seahawks were sure that he was going to use his timeouts. So the Seahawks kind of hurried and Russell Wilson throws the interception to Malcolm Butler. And it literally, his approach won a Super Bowl for the Patriots. But a friend of mine who at the time worked for the Patriots said to me in that off season, he goes, if there was a heart monitor attached to Bill Belichick at that moment, I would bet you it's that his heart was beating at the exact same <laughs> beats per minute as if he was on vacation in Nantucket in the off season. Because to him, this is just what I do. Mm-hmm. This is what I do. And so I think, honestly, when I think of Belichick, I think of a guy who is such a flatliner that he enjoys every aspect of the football world. I like it. Uh, Peter King, this has been fantastic. I greatly appreciate you making the time today. We can read you over on uh, NBC Sports with your uh, Football Morning in America column, which is fantastic. Read it every Monday morning uh, on NBC Sports, Pro Football Talk uh, with Mike Florio and company. Uh, Anything else you'd like to plug as we wrap up here this afternoon, Peter? No, I'd like to plug the Chase Thomas podcast. Listen to Chase Thomas. You'll be a smarter sports fan and obviously a much better human being. Thank you, Peter. That was amazing. (laughs) I appreciate it. All right. Hey, listen, great being on with you, Chase. Take care of yourself. Thank you. We'll have to do this again soon. No problem. Call anytime. All right. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Wow. (laughs) The Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. We're keeping all this in. We're doing this thing live, not in the name redacted way, where he's just shouting at people and throwing papers in that uh, all-time great uh, YouTube video. But Joining me at this time, Fangraph Zone, John Taylor up there in New York City. New York City. John, how are you? I am doing well. I'm I'm amazed that it has taken this long for you to flub the intro, given how many words and how fast it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so congrats on that. Congrats on making that stretch out as long as it has. That errorless yeah. streak. You are you are the Whoever has a long, airless streak currently in baseball of podcast intros. 
Mm. Who who had the longest? I have, I have, it's, it's one of those things. Like I, I find that defensively, at least stuff like that, I pay almost no attention to at this point. It just doesn't register mm. anymore. So I would not be able to tell you who that is. Um, when I was trying to cue that joke up in my head, I was like, no, I really don't. I guess. I, I guess Ozzy Smith. I don't know. Did he have a long errorless streak? Scott Brocious. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Marcus Let's, Giles. You're just naming guys now. <laughs> it's got to be no, someone no. random. The reason I'm going random is that, like, I look at the person with the longest no air streak, kind of like the kid in class who, like, took pri- like took took pride in um, coming to school, like perfect attendance. Like my family and I, we never signed on for the perfect attendance people because if you went to school every single day for a full calendar year that means you went to school sick at least one point Mm -hmm. during that year and you got other people sick it is a ridiculous award john taylor that it is it's it's pointless right but it's it's also encouraging people to go to work sick go to school yeah and that's the thing it's 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 self-defeating too like don't don't do that don't go to work sick don't go to school sick take your allotted sick days those are your legal right especially yeah. as a worker like you know do not do not do that do not do not get other people sick just because of some mistaken belief in like rise and grind hustle mentality that demands that you you know put your precious white blood cells to the test you know just don't don't do that no um but that's what i always looked at it and i think that's the air because like if you come in an air Look, man, sometimes you're freestyling over here. Sometimes you're just like, I want to, if you're a really good fielder and you're just like, I'm going to try something like Mm -hmm. the best, coolest fielders are the ones who have a crazy air where they're like, hey, you know, I wanted to do a a somersault into a double play and it didn't work out. I wanted to dive at something that I thought I could get and I couldn't get, but I'd rather try it. Like instead of like avoiding the air, because you you know what I mean? Like that's what you want. You want someone who at least tries and has a couple airs because that shows that they they have experimented a little bit. They tried to do something that they could not do, but they tried and hey, that's they tried. Cool. So you learned. They made they made an effort. They made an effort. Exactly. John Taylor. Yes. You know who else made an effort over someone, the past month and a half? Well, someone made an effort, I guess. The Houston Astros made an effort, John. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, because this is our first post-World Series. Uh, this is our first episode. post-World yes. Series. Yes. The World um, Series. John. The Astros mm-hmm. win the World Series. Mm-hmm. The Phillies looked like they were gaining some momentum early when they were back in Philadelphia. Houston slams the door on all of that. And, you know, you get a combined no-hitter. That was mm-hmm. really cool. Um, it's never a good sign if you're the opposing team from a combined no-hitter. It's like that the series is not going well um, in this way. But in your best estimation, or best summation, rather, mm-hmm. how did the Astros win the World Series, John? By having a better pitching staff, ultimately. I mean, those last three games of the series, Houston gave up, what, a combined total of three runs in three games. Mm. Um, most of that Phillies lineup simply stopped hitting. As you mentioned, the combined no-hitter already. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's all very... When you look at it that way and you look at the work particularly done by uh, Christian Javier as part of that combined no-hitter, Justin Verlander's not exactly better, but at the to a certain degree better second start. And then Framber Valdez, his two starts, both of them are excellent, including the clincher. Yeah, I mean, it, it just boils down to the pitching. And that, that goes without even mentioning the bullpen as well. That was more or less flawless for the entirety of the series. You know, aside from, I think, a run or two somewhere in there. I feel like I've already forgotten the details of this World Series. But uh, pitching. It was pitching because, truthfully, Houston, and, and this is kind of the funny thing for Houston throughout the playoffs, they never really hit well in any particular series. Uh, they hit plenty of home runs, and as we talked about a bit last time, 
you know, that is the guaranteed way to score in the postseason. It's really hard to string hits together against good pitching staffs. But their offense produced what it basically what it needed to, and the pitching made it all stand up. And that just ended up being the biggest difference. I think, too, obviously, uh, as we saw bits throughout the series, Houston defensively, just a better team. So really, if you want to just chalk it up to overall run prevention, I think you could you could do that. You know, that Houston is a very strong defensive team. They made some great defensive plays. Obviously, Chas McCormick uh, robbing JTRO Mudo of extra bases in the ninth inning of game uh, five, which could have been a huge turning point had Real Mudo reached with Bryce Harper up behind him. That was obviously a very, very big play. Similarly in that game, uh, two plays that stand out, both at first base. One was Reese Hoskins botching uh, a pretty root, not a routine, but a pretty a play that should have been made at first base on a ground ball hit to him with runners on the corners that he couldn't come up with cleanly. And they couldn't get the run at home or the runner at home. And what was a two nothing game became a three nothing game. Uh, that run ended up looming kind of large in that one. Similarly, in that same game, when Yuli Gurriel had to come out with uh, what I think what ended up being an ankle sprain, uh, Trey Mancini replaced him at first base and made a very nice pick on a scorch line drive hit right at him late in the late innings to help keep Philadelphia off the board. Uh, those kinds of things just add up. And for as much as Philly being a bad defensive team didn't really kill them in this World Series, I mean, you, you saw Nick Castellanos make a lot of plays that Nick Castellanos normally does not make. But I think Houston was just overall the better run prevention team, better pitching, better defense, and they got just enough offense to make it all count, thanks in large part to Jeremy Pena, the World Series MVP, who was just fantastic at the top of the order, helped mitigate the struggles of Jose Altuve, who never really looked right at any point in the postseason, uh, helped mitigate the World Series slump that Jordan Alvarez was in up until his uh, Game 6 home run that went approximately 700 feet. Uh, helped mitigate some of the struggles of guys like Kyle Tucker or the bottom of the lineup where they were kind of on and off. I think aside from Pena, Alex Bregman was really the only guy I feel like who was uh, a regular presence on base. And even that was more just through walks and extra base hits and it wasn't anything else. So that to me is a story of that series. It's just how simply good Houston is, how good their pitching is, how good their defense is, how deep they are overall as a team. And I think that that's been, that was the drum I've been, I've been banging on since the start of the postseason. They were the deepest team in the postseason aside from maybe the Dodgers. I, you know, once the Dodgers fell out, it felt to me like it was Houston's world. It was Houston's postseason to win, essentially, and they ended up proved they ended up doing that. And you know, kudos to the Phillies who made it as far as they did. Kind of very much a surprising month, I think. I think there are a lot of pieces there set up well for the future in Philadelphia, and I assume that um, Dave Dombrowski will be busy this offseason to try to you know to try to build off of this particular run of success, but. In the end, they just ran into a better team overall. And I think that's just for, – for as much as we we spent the early part of the postseason talking about all the good teams are getting knocked out and all these upsets are happening, he's like, no, man, in the end of the day, the best team won. you know, And not just won, but I think won convincingly. I don't really think there's any question that Houston is the – or what is or was the deserving champion for this season. And I think that's good where you need the variety. I kind of like that because I think last year, look, banners are forever – check it in the back behind me uh 2022 for or 2021 rather uh for the braves they were not the best team in baseball last year got hot at the right time like jorge soler does not do what he did um mm-hmm. nine times out of ten in that postseason run and sometimes it just works out that way the braves were a better team this year they didn't win the world series um mm-hmm. the dodgers were a great baseball team but you look at the astros and they were the most dominant from the beginning to the end of the postseason and it was different. It was just the best team won. And I like that there is a little bit of variety still in Major League Baseball postseasons, even with the expansion, even with more and more teams getting in. 
look, there was a big fear going into this year where a lot of the talking points going into this was like, oh, what does this mean? Like the Phillies, if they had won, the fallout is, okay, look at this. This is uh, an indictment on playoff expansion. The Phillies were bad all year. I mean, they, you, could, you could read it that way. I think the other way is that like any team can win if they get hot at the right time, ideally. But and, the Astros were hot all year long. Like yeah, the Astros and, were literally hot from the beginning of this season to the end of this season. The Astros were hot. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't think there's any debate that Houston was a better team overall. You know, just mm-hmm. top to bottom. They proved it over the course of the regular season. They proved it over the course of the postseason. Um, I, I just don't find myself necessarily necessarily in agreement with folks who, I think Joe Sheehan has one, been one of the more vocal people about this, to be like, oh, the expand, like the Phillies shouldn't have even been here in the first place. It's such a bad sign when, uh, I forget who was saying that the NLCS was between, between a team that finished in a third place, 11 games out of first, and a team that finished 22 games out of first in their division. And it's like, yeah, but that happens. You know, that you're not always going to get the two best teams in each league meeting. Next the year might be the number one and number two. It might be. And that's and the other thing is like how many part of what part of uh, the thinking I had coming into this postseason was like, boy, it's going to be really boring if we get Astros, Yankees and Braves, Dodgers essentially again. Yeah. You know, and we, we have to do that whole song and dance again. Like, I mean, I don't I don't have any issue with Houston winning a World Series with regards to, you know, oh, let's get some new blood in there. We, we've had between Houston's last title and their most current title, we had uh, four different teams win the World Series. We had the Red Sox win in 18. We had the the Nationals win in 19. We had the Dodgers finally winning in 20, and then the the Braves in 21. So we had a team winning the winning a World Series for the first time, a team winning its first World Series in a while after being really dominant, a Braves team winning for the first time in 30 years, and all the Red Sox. But – you know, you're still getting that variety, even if you're not getting all the like. I guess ultimately the question is, what do you want more? Do you want the postseason to be something where the number where the number one team in each league is dutifully rewarded with a championship, or do you want to see variety and do you want to see teams making runs? Because as it is, like the way the postseason is set up, again, you're not going to get guaranteed the number one and number two teams in each championship series to then play for the World Series. That's just not going to happen with the way things are currently set up. You are more likely than not going to get years like this one and last and last year and the year before. Well, maybe not so much the year before that because the Rays were, I think, pretty close to the best team in the AL that year if they weren't uh, outright. You know, or a year like you know, it, you're going to get the Nationals, you're going to get the the second half Braves, you're going to get the Phillies from the month of October. It's just going to happen in the way this is set up, and you you can complain about that setup, but at the same time, like we talked about, the only alternative is basically to go back to the way things were way back in baseball's heyday where there were no divisions and it was just the top team from each league automatically won the pennant and went to the world series. You know, if that's what you want, I'm, I don't, you know, no judgment on that, but you're not going to get it. Like this is the system we have. And I don't think there was anything that happened in this postseason that would make MLB think even for a second about going back to the old format or changing up to a different format. As far as I can tell, you know, MLB got their money from ESPN for that extra round of the playoffs. I'm sure the postseason was very valuable for them, as it always is. It ended with the best team overall winning anyway, but we also got uh, some good runs from unexpected teams. We got that Phillies team that was just really fun to watch. I can't imagine there's anyone in MLB who, who looks at this postseason and goes, that didn't work. It worked yeah. exactly like they wanted it to. And I just don't see any way in which next year's postseason, and the postseason after that, and the postseason after that isn't just going to be more of the same. Because in MLB's mind, the expanded postseason did exactly what it was supposed to do. It gave more teams the opportunity to be part of the postseason. It gave more fan bases opportunities to be invested in their team. 
And it paid off because you had one team going from essentially the lowest seed in the National League to within two wins of the World Series at one point. That's honestly kind of the dream for baseball. I don't really don't think Rob Manfred and company care whether or not the best team in baseball wins the World Series every year. It's nice, I guess, if it happens, but I don't think it's something that either invalidates the course of the season as it happened or that causes any real problems at Major League Baseball headquarters. They want variety. They want diversity. And I think ultimately they probably want wildcard teams to make that run because I assume in part, you know, part of the ostensible reason for the expanded playoffs is so that more teams have a chance to win titles. In reality, it's so that more teams have a chance to get to the playoffs without having to exert that much financial effort. But the nice side effect of that, I guess, can be, yeah, but if you're a team, like now you can look at teams going forward who teams who would normally be in that kind of 80-ish win range. And again, you can point them to last year's Braves and this year's Phillies and be like, look what happens if you get hot at the right time. Look Mm -hmm. what happens if you make moves to stay in contention. If you build a team that is designed to win uh, as opposed to just punting winning off until the, the who knows when in the future, you're going to get a team that actually can win a championship or at the very least can contend for one. It's much, much harder to build what Houston has done. That takes a whole ass load of time. And like, you know, and, and kudos, especially to the Houston is a, a top to bottom phenomenal organization, I guess, aside from ownership that is good at literally everything a baseball franchise and team can be good at. But you know, if, if this year had ended with, with the Phillies winning the World Series instead of the Astros, I don't think that necessarily changes anything about the sport itself or how it functions. I think you would have had a lot of complaining from people that an 80-something win team won the World Series, but we've had that before. The 06 Cardinals were an 80-something win team. Uh, the 2021 Braves, how many how many wins did that Braves team finish with ultimately? 89, 90, 91, 88? It wasn't 90. I think it was the 80s. It was yeah, the 80s. like we have had this and the baseball world just kept on spinning. And like, you know, there's if you're a purist, you probably don't like it. But at the same time, if you're a purist, the game does this. The sport doesn't really care about you at this point. You know, the Rob Manfred has made it abundantly clear that he is not a baseball purist in that regard. Um, he wants the sport to be something different, something more I, I'm not even really sure what exactly, how exactly you would term it, but he he does not necess- he does not need baseball to be unchanged from the way it was. Nor do I see him being the kind of guy who's like, no, I want to go back to you know baseball classic essentially. And yeah. you know, it does that demean the regular season to a certain degree? Sure, I guess. Like it, it does stink. I think for teams that you know win their divisions and win a hundred games in the process to go out in the first round of the playoffs because they lost a best of three series essentially. That can't be fun, but. That's just the nature of a postseason. That's the nature That's of, a, baseball. of a short tournament. What we should want is just different variety where like sometimes the best of the best uh, went out and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a mixture. Sometimes it's a weird situation where it's Padres Phillies and then the next year it's Dodgers Braves. Like um, I, I think the main thing is you don't want uniformity year over year. You, no, don't you, want- you, you don't want a system where you're seeing the same four teams in the CS every year. Right. And that, that's what I was kind of worried about going to this postseason was that, oh, the teams at the top of each league respectively are very, very strong. And there's a good chance that RCS is just a repeat of last year's with the Yankees uh, taking the place of, uh, wait, actually, the, I've, I've already forgotten who in was in the 2021 ALCS with Houston. Was uh, the Yankees? Have, um, oh, no, it, was, it was Boston. Never mind. That's right. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. So with the, with the Yankees replacing the Red Sox in that formula, but mm. I I agree with you. Diversity is good. Variety is good. I think you know. Which is good all across the board. I would say. And the funny thing is, you're you're still getting that diversity and variety, along with the fact that Houston has pretty well built what you could pretty easily call a dynasty. You know, two titles, four pennants, 
of, I believe, five division titles in the span of the in, in, um, from 2017 onward. Like, you know, that's a that is a borderline dynasty, if not a dynasty. I, I don't I don't want to the semantics debate of what a dynasty is doesn't really matter to me. But they are a very, very good baseball team. And they, you know, that can still exist even with all the variety we're getting in terms of the teams that are in the postseason. You can have both. You know, it's it's good to have both. I think it's good to have the diversity of teams in there. And I think it's good too, to have a really good team like that, that can win titles. I think that's just good for the sport. If I, I think you need that every now and then, if not often, the best team should win, and, you know, that just works and makes sense. But I don't just don't think it has to happen all the time, nor do I think that if it doesn't happen, that's a sign that there's something wrong with the sport. Can the Astros run it back, John? Sure. I don't see why not. I mean, for the most part, they are bringing, uh, they are bringing the entire or the majority of that team back. I mean, their major free agent uh, is, sorry, their major free agent is Justin Verlander, who I have to assume if he does want to continue playing, he probably will remain in Houston unless there's some burning desire to go somewhere else. I think if Detroit had been in better shape, maybe there's some conversation about like, oh, does he want to go back to Detroit and try to take them over the top finally? But I, I, I can't really see that with the way things have played out there so far. I mean, otherwise, their major free agents are Martin Maldonado, who is probably going to retire if he doesn't come back. Uh, Trey Mancini, who, you know, never really emerged into any kind of starting position there. Uh, minor, more minor guys like Ryan Stanek and Phil Maton. You know, the rest of that team is coming back, you know, with the possible exception, I would guess, of depending whether or not Houston exercises its team option on, on uh, Hector Norris. But otherwise, the whole band is reuniting. So no, I, I don't see any reason why they can't uh, why they can't run it back. It's just going to be a matter of, you know, can they get lucky in terms of, or how can they do in terms of, you know, what holes do they need to fill this offseason? and how much stronger is Seattle and possibly Texas going to be behind them? But no, I, I don't I don't see any reason why the the Astros can't bring it back. Although interestingly, funny enough, right now I'm actually looking at their uh, at their contract situation. I'm not seeing Yuli Gurriel's name here anywhere, which is kind of strange. Um, I'm wondering if his contract may be up. Although, actually, now that I mentioned, no, there he is. I was going to say, I can't even find him on Houston's baseball reference page. Yeah, Yuli Gurriel is also a free agent, but again, a, a guy who at age 30. 40. Yeah, he's going to be 39 in June. Like, he had a very down season offensively. He was pretty good throughout the postseason. I think there's still something there, but I also would not be surprised if Houston moves on uh, from Gurriel anyway. But it, it, all of which is to say their most major free agent is Verlander. I'm pretty confident in saying that if he want, if they want him back, he will come back. Uh, it's not going to, they're not going to have to uh, empty the, the Brinks truck or anything to bring him back. So yeah, I'd say if you were to, you know, just purely right now, like early 2023 power rankings, I'd say you'd probably put Houston and the Dodgers one, two in some order in terms of uh, the most likely world series teams in that group. Atlanta is probably in there as well. The Yankees, depending on what they do. Uh, maybe the the Mets very much depending on what they do. But yeah, I'd say Houston has a very good chance of, of winning it all again. Notice you left out the Phillies there. I mean, I, I think, and, and that's a, I think there's a bigger conversation to be had about like, what do the Phillies do for next year to kind of make this stick? Mm. I don't necessarily know if there is one thing in particular. I think, you know, a, a, a similar, a similar situation where the cat the i'm sorry where the the team is as a whole returning you know you look at who who they have under contract for 2023 it's pretty much everybody um although actually i just realized baseball reference is already pushed over to uh 
2023 contracts and just left 2022 off the books. But you know, I, I oh, wow. think the thing with I think the thing with Philly is just a matter of um, can they add enough depth, particularly pitching wise, to put themselves in better position to win the division? Because I would feel a lot more comfortable saying the Phillies will win the will will you know can be realistic World Series contenders again if they can actually win the NLEs because. For as much as they almost did it as the number six seed through the wild card, that is obviously a much, much more difficult path. And I don't think it's one that the Phillies are going to be eager to try again. You know, your your best bet of winning the World Series is to win your division and just start from there. So, you know, with with that caveat, if if the Phillies can improve in the offseason and similarly to Houston, fill whatever uh, holes they need to fill on their roster, which mostly to me again is starting pitching depth, uh, reliever help, ideally improving the defense to some degree. I know that you're going to have, you know, you, you know, you're still going to have that middle of the order of Harper, Real Mudo and Castellanos and Schwarber, but you know, ideally some better gloves in there somewhere to try to improve the run prevention of this team. You know, otherwise though, I, I think Philly's in a, I think Philly's in a good spot. I just don't know that I'd put them near the top of that. Uh, I, I think probably better said it's much easier to predict that Houston and the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Braves and the Mets will have better world series odds. I think than a team like the Phillies will. I like it. I think it's just gonna be hard for them to get back. And I think the NL East is going to even be even better and be even. Yeah. And a lot of that too, just like it depends on what the Marlins do. If the Marlins make themselves better and and actually can. And we're operating under the assumption that they are going to do that. I think because the the GM is in a winner. They're in a organizational shift if they don't win. I mean, you make the um, the manager uh, the manager change to Skip Schumacher, and we'll see what he looks like. Um, never seen him before, first time manager. But by and large, I mean, I'm still predicting the Marlins have the biggest move to make this this winter because they yeah. just have so much firepower with their starting pitching that so many folks around the league would kill for. So yeah, and I think we you know I've already we're already seeing rumors that Pablo Lopez is being talked about. Um, you know, someone who almost moved at the deadline, someone we've talked yep. about as someone who it would make a lot of sense, I think, if Miami is going to move one starter, that it would be Lopez to get a bat back. Uh, just to circle back to the Phillies real fast, I I finally did pull up their free agent list. Noah Syndergaard, Gene Segura, Corey Nabel, Kyle Gibson, Brad Hand, Zach Eflin, David Robertson. These are not, you know, if, if all of those guys walk, you know, will the Phillies be worse? Eh, maybe by a little, but those are not guys where if, you know, if they lose them all, you know, it, it, it's doom and gloom time in Philadelphia. I think the core of that team, much like Houston, is still in place. And with some smart moves around the edges, they will be just fine. Similarly with Houston. Verlander is the only major free agent, depending on how you feel about Michael Brantley, who is already 35 and will be 36 next season. Uh, similarly with Guriel and Mancini and your boy, Will Smith. Not a lot of notable free agents. I think, honestly, if behind, world champ, Will Smith. Behind, the, behind Verlander, you can make an argument that the most valuable free agent the Astros will have to figure something out with is Rafael Montero, who is very, hmm. very good for them in relief, has been very good for that, has been very good in relief since he uh, joined up with Seattle and since the Mariners moved into Houston. Uh, another a guy I can see them probably bringing back, although as you've seen with Houston, their pitching development is just so strong that I don't even know. I, I think they can let a guy like that walk and they'll survive it. But yeah, neither of those two teams I think has anything to worry about in terms of the overall core. I think it's just a matter of deepening the roster for both of them and adding wherever they need to add uh, to get themselves stronger. I like it, John. Um, something I don't like that uh, friend of the pod, Bob Silverman uh, at Rabid 
Mets fan. Um, I tweeted him the contract because uh, you alerted me to the contract first. And then mm-hmm. I was like, oh, oh, no. Oh, Mets. Oh, and no. then I text uh, Bobby to get his real time reaction. He's like, don't care. Not my money. And I that's As what I think. Th- right. And I think that's a fair assessment. If you're a Mets fan and you're concerned, like, I, I think that's fair to be like, it's not our money. We have the rich center in baseball. Go do it, man. Like, yeah. just flex and spend all the money because it's not ours and it helps the team. Uh, That's the thing. That is, yeah. is, it, is it peak financial efficiency to give your closer a $100 million contract? No, no, I don't think there's anyone who could argue that with a straight face. Does that matter here? Also, no. Yeah. Because the way to look, I think the way to look at the Diaz deal, which is huge and I think is good for both sides. Obviously, it's good for Diaz. Uh, to get that deal, to get the the no trade clause, to get the early opt out if he wants to try the market again, to get the six year option, all of that is great for him. Good job for him, and by him and his agent. For the Mets, uh, you know, is there a better way to use that money? Probably not, because as we talked about last week, the Mets bullpen is really one of their weaknesses going into 2023. Uh, Diaz was far and away the best reliever in that bullpen and was set to hit free agency. The next best reliever in that bullpen was Adam Ottavino, who is going to be a free agent. I believe the next best reliever behind him is Trevor May, who I believe is also a free agent. Their only left-handed reliever in that bullpen, Joely Rodriguez, I believe is also a free agent. Like There was not a whole lot. Seth Lugo, also a free agent. There was not a whole lot of carryover from, from now last season to this coming season. And what carryover there was, I mean, your top returning reliever was set to be Drew Smith. Mm-hmm. And Drew Smith is fine, but that's not – you got to do better than that if you're the Mets. So – and if you also look at the fact that, you know, Diaz was far and away the best reliever available in the open, who was going to be available in the open market. There was really no one who was going to come close to him in terms of ability and also in terms of exactly what the Mets need, which is a ninth inning guy, which is a closer, someone they can deploy in their high leverage situations. And given where the Mets are on the contention cycle, which is to say very much contenders, that's not really a position they can say, oh, what does it matter? You know, it kind of does matter for them. They need a guy who can lock down ninth inning leads on a reliable, regular basis. And it helps too that he was, by every measure, the best reliever in baseball last year. If you're the Mets and you have genuine designs on contending next year, you basically can't let your best reliever walk. Mm. You know, it did it cost more than than Steve Cohen probably wanted to pay? I'm sure. I'm sure that there. I'm sure the Mets would have preferred half that deal if they could have, but they were never going to get that. Diaz was always going to get this money from somebody. It makes the most sense for the Mets to keep him. I mean, again, look at that Mets bullpen as it currently stands right now and subtract Diaz from it. And that is a bottom five bullpen in baseball. If you're the Mets, you cannot run that out during the regular season. And yeah, process wise, would it have made more, more sense to, or would it have been uh, a better use of money or a more efficient use of money to give like three years and $36 million to Zach Eflin or something, and then sign a bunch of cheaper guys around him. Sure. Is that bullpen going to be as good? Absolutely not. No. Yeah. Um, so I think the Mets did basically, they had to do what they did. And the other part of it is, like you said, Steve, Steve Cohen's the richest owner in baseball. This should not stop them when it comes to making their other moves. This should not stop them if they want to from re-signing Brandon Nimmo or from mm-hmm. re-signing Jacob deGrom or from, you know, adding from signing Wilson Contreras, if that's what they want to do or whatever it is the Mets plans currently are for this offseason. Edwin Diaz's contract should not be an impediment at any point, really. You know, again, it's a move you had to make. It's a move you can afford, as your good buddy Bob said. It's not. It's not your money anyway. If you're a Mets yeah. fan, why are you? Don't don't. It's not a thing you really should be worrying about. Your team can afford it. All of the Yankees way back in the day. Take advantage of that. Flex your money. You know, flex the flex the strength you have there. Take advantage of that every time. 
I want to end video uh, reaction from David Stearns, right? Like to after moving Josh Hader when he did um, yeah. at the Brewers and it's like he's getting ready to move in and like just he reads or some of his uh, executive assistant comes in and it's just like, hey, uh, did you see the news? What? That job you wanted? Uh, did you see who's on the payroll now for the next five years? That extension? It's like Edwin Diaz, five years. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's going to be a little bit more difficult to trade than Josh Hader well, in I mean, a couple the- years. The joke I liked was that it must be they they're definitely like flaunting or they're definitely like flexing in front of David Stern to be like, hey, look, we can keep our expensive closer. Yeah. We don't have to trade a mid season just because we can't pay him anymore <laughs> next year. Um and yeah, but that that's kind of the other part of it is like that financial advantage is also beneficial in that way because again, it's you know, you if you can do things other teams can't, do them. Yeah. You know, take advantage of and that. And I think we all agree, right? Like all smart baseball people can I think you and I can agree on this. Like the contract's gonna be pretty terrible at the end. Like, I don't, I don't yeah, see a five-year. That's, that's like, every contract. Who cares? Yeah, you want a World Series, the, who cares? The last two years of that Diaz contract probably will not be very fun. No. But the first three years are what you're going to need if you are serious about winning the NL East, about winning a World Series, about yeah. actually making postseason noise. You have to do it. There's no real way around that. You know, payroll flexibility, financial efficiency is wonderful, but it does not win championships. That's for sure. Also, closers are cool. Wrote about it a few weeks ago. Closers yeah. are cool. And, uh, thinking, Edwin, it, it, imagine how bad a start to the offseason it would be if you basically just said, yeah, Edwin Diaz is gone. We made him an offer and he didn't want it. So good luck to him. Talk about starting the offseason on the most sour note you possibly can. The closer everyone loved last year who was the most dominant reliever in baseball. Yeah, he's gone. But we got Drew Smith. Like nobody, no Mets fan is going to want to stick around for that kind of thing. No. I mean, most Mets fans don't seem to want to stick around anyway. They're just <laughs> cursed to. But. I think this is a start. Like you're already seeing they're talking with Jacob deGrom. I think deGrom's probably back. I think the Mets are going to be bold. I think we're going to see this is the start of they're spending a bunch of money this this winter. I don't think the Mets are going in a corner. Yeah, I think they have to be. I think we've talked about it before. Like to keep this team in contending status and bring back the pieces that work, you're going to have to spend a lot of money. There's just no way around that one. So, yeah, I I, I agree that I think this will be a big offseason for the Mets because I don't think they have any other choice if they want to keep pace with everybody else at the top of the game. Uh, the Angels going the opposite way. Uh, they have said publicly that they are not going to trade Shohei Otani this offseason, John. This is a different one than Mike Trout. Mike Trout's dead to me. He signed the long-term contract. Don't feel bad for Mike uh, Mike Trout for sticking around in L.A. and not playing a meaningful baseball game in his entire uh, Major League Baseball career. But that's on Trout at this point. Great player. It's a shame that everyone on the East Coast will never see it come this time of year. Shohei Otani's different. Mm-hmm. Shohei Otani... The writing's on the wall. Like this is, uh, I think Shohei Otani is getting ready for uh, the the parachute uh, to be uh, ejected here. And I would, if I'm the Angels, man, I kind of want to get out in front of this. Like maybe because we'll have to see what happens with ownership. And I know that might be up for sale sooner rather than later. Um, but what are we doing? This team's not winning the AL West next year. No matter what you do this offseason, I don't see a path to winning the AL West or even really just being a playoff team with the Mariners figuring it out uh, and the Rangers really going for it too. I just, I don't see it for um, the angels. I, I don't know. Like, would you, what would you do uh, based on what we've seen and just the current landscape of the American league at this point, would you just sell as high as you possibly can in Otani, or would you just be like, we're LA, we're a major market. We have trout, we have Otani. We'll figure it out. What would you do, John? Yeah. I mean, I'm tempted to say figure it out if only just because I mean, I think you hit one of the reasons why there won't be an Otani trade this offseason, and it's because there's no ownership, I think, yet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this is a situation where whoever the new owner of the Angels is going to be like, oh, hey, that super generational talent, the the guy who's literally doing stuff that only Babe Ruth did before, arguably the most marketable player in the entire sport, uh, the like one of two reasons why people come to these games. Yeah, let's get rid of him. I, I, I just I don't see that happening. I think it's different from Soto because well, I, I, it just feels different from Soto to me. I think with that Nationals team, there was way less of a hope or an expectation that they would be good with or without Soto. Um, so I can kind of understand the rationale there. Well, we might as well sell him because this team's going to be most intriguing to a potential buyer with as few uh, monet with as few financial uh, essentially uh, obligations as as possible. I don't really see the same for Otani, if only because, like you said, Trout's already there. You've already got Trout. And for as much as I agree that the, the Angels are not, I think, going to be contenders next year, barring some incredible change of everything, I think it behooves them at the very least to act as if they are, to try to make it work, give it a half season to see if they can make it work. And if they true, and if by the half, if by the, the, sorry, by the trade deadline, we're once again looking at a lost Angel season. I think at that point we're and by that point also there's new ownership. I think we're going to be looking at um, at possibly Otani being dealt then, and if not then, probably the, the following offseason. Because in my mind, I think you get one more year to try to figure this out, or at the very least to try to put together a team that is better overall. Are the Angels going to be able to do it? I kind of doubt it. I just I have not you know we've, we've not seen that. But on the other hand, maybe new ownership will be better in this regard. And I have to imagine that whoever new ownership is, is going to want Otani in the fold at least for long enough to try to figure out whether or not any of this is doable. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I would keep him for now. I, I don't think his value will be necessarily negatively impacted if he doesn't get moved this offseason as opposed to next. Obviously, it's one year less of Otani, but at the same time, he's he's such a unicorn in so many different ways that I, I really don't think it's necessarily as simple as like, oh, he's now less valuable overall. I, I think it's just a matter of... The Angels have to see what they've got with new ownership, if that is something that is going to happen this offseason. And I think it's supposed to, or it should anyway. I think it's worth taking the offseason to try to see what they can make happen. Am I optimistic about their chances? No, I'm pessimistic about their chances overall. But I think it's at the very least worth seeing what you can do with Otani in the fold for the first half. You know, see if you can make it work. And if you can't, you've still got time to move him. Because it, it, And I think, too, the other side of it's going to be he's not going to want to stick around much longer if this keeps going. He's already making the noise about, I want to play in the postseason. I want to be on a good team. You know, you might as well try to put that together before he you, basically you have to move him. And I think that's the other thing. The Angels don't have to move him right now. There is some time, I think. Um, I just think the odds of them being able to pull that kind of thing off are very low. That's fair. Um, Anthony Rizzo, where does he play baseball next year, John? And do you think the Yankees are the best spot for him in 2023? Yeah, I, I don't really see any reason for him to leave New York unless the Yankees come to him with just a totally non-existent offer or just make it clear that they're not interested in him going forward, which wouldn't really make a whole ton of sense to me. I, he fits very well in that lineup. He fits very well, obviously, in that ballpark. Uh, he's a relatively cheap commitment. He's not someone who's going to be blocking anyone, either short-term or long-term. The Yankees don't really have any top-flight short-term first-base prospects. Uh, and Long-term, obviously, Rizzo is not going to be there for the long term. I think in terms of other teams that could probably use uh, some first base help just going off like what they produced last year. I mean, if if the Angels really are serious and Rizzo is available, that's a guy who would make a lot of sense there unless they you know want to give Jared Walsh another spin. I'd be curious if Houston 
uh, since they're losing Guriel and Mancini, what they want to do at first base going forward. I wonder if Rizzo would make sense for them as well. Uh, Miami, another team that really got very little production out of first base last year. I know they, they put Lou and Diaz there at the end of the season because they want to see what they've got. Um, but if you know they're not feeling confident about that, Rizzo is a guy I think would make a lot of sense there, although left-handed power in Miami is not a good fit. That ballpark is a terrible place for left-handed hitters, so you know don't feel super great about that one. Uh, the Giants, the Giants, similarly, if Brandon Belt walks, and I think there's a very real chance Belt might follow uh, Bruce Bochy to, to Texas. But you know, if if he walks, Rizzo could be a pretty one for one replacement there. That would be that'd be nice. So I think there are a lot of options, but I think New York is probably the one that still makes the most sense overall. I could see it. Um, most interesting opt in so far john and the most interesting opt out so far for you um you'll have i mean you have to what who have been the opt-in so far most most of what i've seen has been opt-outs um i have the list let me see um so Jimmy nelson club did not uh uh pick up his offer uh, mitch hanniger did not uh get his qualifying offer picked up uh aj Pollock. Uh, Pollock uh, declined his player option. Pollock, uh, is, Pollock is kind of a confusing one to me. I guess, you know, he had an option for $13 million and a buyout for $5 million, So he's clearly banking that he can get a deal worth more than $8 million on the open market, which he probably can. But mm. on the other hand, AJ Pollock wasn't very good last year, you know, and yeah. he's not someone. I mean, this is a guy who's now, uh, he's, he's going to be 35 in, in the beginning of December. He was a below-league average bat last year for the White Sox. He really struggles to hit right-handed pitching. You know, he was great his last two years in, in Los Angeles, but, you know, this is not someone I think that most teams would turn to as a full-time outfielder. I think this is someone who, at this point, probably fills kind of a reserve platoon role. You know, is that a guy who's going to get a better than $8 million offer on the on the open market? I don't know. I mean, if you're a White Sox fan, you're probably happy that Pollock is gone. You can actually do something different in right field or try it again for the for the billionth time. But that one is a little surprising that he wouldn't just take the guaranteed money because um, I, I don't really see him as a guy who's going to be all that uh, all that popular as uh, as a free agent. But who knows? Uh, Gene Segura, another one who I mean, that was a team option where they they you know they're pushing him out. I wouldn't be surprised if Segura comes back on a smaller deal, hmm. perhaps. But I could also see Philly just deciding that they want to move Bryson Stott to second base, and maybe they'll be in on the shortstop market. So um, there are a lot of good ones out there right now. So I think I mean you can read into it that way if you would if you'd like to. I think that's not insensible, um, but it, obviously it's going to take some time to figure that out. Your guy uh, Bogarts officially opted out. Yeah, but they, there's no surprise there. Like Correa, Bogarts opting out. That there's no surprise there. Um, White Sox pick up Anderson's option. I thought it was kind of no interesting they, did, they declined Harrison's option. I think Harrison, I, I think they had too much Josh Harrison last year. I think the, mm. the ideal for him would have been as a utility guy. Instead, he had to spend too much time starting. I just don't know that there's much value to him as other than a utility guy. And, you know, there, there are always a million of those guys available on the, on the open market. You might as well see if you can get one who's a little cheaper, maybe a little better defensively, whatever it happens to be. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Just, I, just looking through this list of stuff. Mostly, Jerks and Profar opting out makes sense. Try to find a multi-year deal somewhere. Coming off a very good season in San Diego, and he's still only like twenty-nine years old, which is absolutely crazy. To That's me. wild. I would yeah. never have guessed that. Jerks and Profar has been in baseball for like fifteen years and has like, and is I think younger than Mike Trout. It's, it's when did he debut? Bonkers. What age? Nineteen, twenty? 
yeah, he was a very, very young uh, debut. Whenever it was, he made his debut. Is uh, he? Yeah, he's twenty nine years old. He was born in February of ninety three, and he made. I love his we're debut. like that is just ancient. I'm like I'm older than this man. It is. It is very ancient though. That's kind of mm-hmm. the thing. Um, yeah, he he made his debut in twenty ten. Or sorry, not twenty ten. He made his debut um, in twenty twelve with the Rangers at nineteen. Oh, Cashman at the GM meetings. Josh Donaldson uh, is the Yankees third baseman next year. Yeah, that's a choice. Sure. We'll see. I'm. Look, that's I mean, a like, choice. I mean, look. I, he, the you can't run it back with Donaldson. Do and, like, we, I understand not, bringing back Rizzo from and stuff. A million but... years ago, when when Cashin was saying things like Bubba Crosby is our starting center fielder next year, mm. it, it, I'll, I'll believe that when opening day rolls around and Josh Donaldson is standing at third base. I do not really see how that happens unless. And I, I know part of it is like the third base market is not a great one, but I'd also think the Yankees would be probably better off moving Donaldson and trying to see if they can stick one of Peraza or Cabrera or whoever there and just see how that works. You know, I, I can't imagine there's enough left in Donaldson's bat that they think to give him another year. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of thing, like, what started is, short to start next year. I would imagine so if the, if the, if the Yankees don't make a move, but at the same mm-hmm. time, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, Cashman does stuff like this, and I think you should not take anything that is said in the beginning of November with regards to the opening day of the 2023 season. You should not put any of that in pen. You know, that that is Cashman. That is a Cashman staple. You know, oh, yeah, this guy will definitely be here next year. You take that with a huge grain of salt always when it comes to the Yankees. Yeah. Um, John Taylor, what can the good folks check out from you and the team over at Fangraphs.com this week? So our big thing is we have released our top 50 free agents ranking for this offseason. Uh, obviously, Aaron Judge topping that list, but you can find you know the big four shortstops, Justin Verlander, Clayton Kershaw. All your favorite free agents are going to be there. We have that uh, with player notes, with contract estimates, with uh, projections from our steamer projection system for 2023. Uh, no predictions on where they're going to end up. That's up for you, the fan, to decide. But definitely check out the top 50 it's one of our big pieces a year we put a lot of work into it and it's always a fun time uh dan Saborski had a quick write-up on edwin diaz's deal if you'd like to read more about that uh we have a few things coming down the pipe mostly uh the other big thing obviously of this offseason the hall of fame ballot jay jaffe will begin uh whirring up his hall of fame machine the jaws machine uh starting with the announcement from the hall that this year's committee ballot uh, part of their old veterans committee. I don't know what they call it now. Uh, the today's game ballot, which will feature a bunch of guys that I don't think people are tired of talking about Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling. You know, I know people just want to keep talking about their hall of fame candidacies and whether or not they deserve to be inducted. So Jay will have a quick look at that ballot. Who's on it, who missed the cut, you know, what, whether or not we should expect any guys to get voted in. Uh, but yeah, well, you know, we're going to, now that the off season is here, we're going to, we're going to be breaking it down. We'll obviously have reactions to every signing, every trade, every move. Uh, we'll have it. Like I said, we already have our top 50 free agents. We'll have all the hall of fame stuff. So come on down to Fangraphs, your one-stop shop for all your off season analysis. Come sign up for a membership, $60 a year ad free. Download our new app where you now have, you can read our Fangraphs articles on the app. Yeah. Fangraphs.com. It's good. There you go. John Taylor, always a pleasure, and I will talk to you next week. All right, sounds good, man. All right, hello, and welcome back. 
Chase Most Podcast, taping this on a Tuesday evening. Dan Matthews of 680 The Fan is here. He is ready to make the case for uh, why the Tennessee Vols were actually the winners on uh, Saturday evening in Athens. That <laughs> it was one of those, uh, those moral victories that a lot of people are discounting as to what happened uh, to my volunteers uh, over the weekend. Uh, but Dan, good evening, sir. How are you? Very well, man. How's everything going with you? You know, we've had a couple days to decompress and to, you know, get over it and move forward because Mizzou week, we got Eli Drinkwitz, uh, who talked a lot of a lot of smack uh, this offseason about uh, the state of Tennessee football and getting some wins back because of probation and stuff like that. And then today he was saying stuff about like, yeah, we've got some stuff that we've learned from last year that we've got up our sleeve, but we'll tell you after. I don't know. This the the collection of Eli Drinkwitz and Shane Beamer back to back will uh, be very very important to me uh, on this very program because co coach of the year a year ago with uh, Josh Heupel um, still reps uh, still grinds my gears, Dan, as to how that uh, turned out to be the case. But um, you know, eleven and one, we'll see. College football playoff put them at number five. Um, as long as they went out, I think uh, the path yeah. is okay. I, I'm I'm not I'm feeling okay on Rocky Top. I'm I'm feeling okay. You should, man. I mean, look, it, it's no like sin to lose to Georgia. I mean, they're the defending national champions. Yeah, they had their down moments at times this year, but at the same time, I mean, you know, they still are a team that has a lot of talent on their side, and they showed it. They put together a hell of a game plan, both offensively and defensively, and they executed it. Uh, it was as simple as that. And let's be honest here. I mean, I think – while Tennessee's program is far better than the way it was a couple of years ago when they were in Athens, um, it's still probably not to the level that Georgia is right now. So sometimes, you know, you just – it's kind of like what Kirby Smart said earlier in the season about when they beat Oregon. He was like, we won the day because we have better players. Um, that probably was the case uh, in, in some parts on, uh, on Saturday. But, no, you're exactly right. I mean, you get Eli Drinkwitz, who I'm kind of with you. It's like – Lane Kiffin can get away with the trash talk. Like, mm. you know, he's winning. Like, Eli, you beat LSU in your first season. Aside from almost beating Georgia, what is your highlight at yeah. Missouri? Um, it's just, it's kind of interesting to me, like, the battles that he's picking. Where, remember, not too long ago, we kind of thought, like, you know, what an ass Lane Kiffin is for saying the things that he was saying. And people, you know, wanted him to lose. Now people think it's endearing and cute because – we know he's a really good coach. So I almost kind of think we're to that point with Eli Drinkwitz of, um, you know, dude, it's not really cute. You guys aren't winning. So it's kind of corny what you're doing. Absolutely. But we'll see what happens. They're 20 point dogs uh, on senior die for, uh, for Tennessee. So we'll, uh, I'm not, I'm not sweating it. Um, Dan, how is Chuck and Turnoff going? You're now um, just you're running the show with the guys over there, Brandon Joseph and Matt mm-hmm. and Chuck, obviously. But um, with Los exiting and uh, with your role increasing, what has that uh, been like thus far for you? Uh, well, I have to sit next to Brian Hoyt every day, yeah. which um, you know that's that's you know only so uh so high that you can go with that. But mm-hmm. uh, no, it's awesome. I mean, you know, Matt and Chuck are awesome. Uh, they're the most successful dysfunctional couple I think you can, you can be, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, where you got Matt and, and Matt's a wild card. Uh, you got Chuck, uh, where you never know what Chuck you're going to get, which is what we love about Chuck. 
Um, you never know if uh, you're going to get, uh, you know, just uh, dynamite takes on, on the Braves or if you're going to get the Otis Mound story. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty much what Chuck, what you get. But um, no, it's awesome. I mean, it's so fun. Uh, we got a great group at, at 680. I think that's what, what uh, hopefully comes through on the radio. And, you know, it's a bunch of dudes that uh, care about each other. And, and, and we, uh, we show up every day and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully us having fun on air translates to the airwaves as, as well. Because if we're doing that, obviously uh, we're doing the right thing. What's the hardest part about putting this show together for you? Mm, I would say that sometimes it's exactly like, where do things go? Like for example, Georgia, you can never talk enough dogs, mm-hmm. but it's also though at the same time, it's, you know, despite what people think of the Falcons, you still have a first place Falcons team. So you got to talk a little bit of Falcons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's being able to have enough of your main course but then also have good side dishes. I mean, because think about it, it's kind of like a show I almost kind of feel like is going to eat at a nice steakhouse, right? Like Mm. our main course is a good steak and there's different chops of it, but our main thing is steak. But you also, you want to have some good potatoes with it. You want to have some good vegetables with it, a good salad, some good bread, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's, that's the important thing is as well is just not being a you know a, a situation where it's you know man you know do you guys talk anything other than dogs which we do um and, and you know and obviously uh we're in the off season so it's not as much braves right now but you know we would break in a little bit of braves but you know i, I would say that just the biggest thing you know is is knowing your hosts and i know that my hosts uh and and you know and brandon knows this as well and hoyt knows this um, you know, that, you know, we know uh, what they want in terms of guests, you know, w- w- you know, why are we having this guest on? We're having this guest on because they can give us, you know, great insight on that topic that normally we wouldn't be able to get from just the guys we have on our shows. So I think that's just the biggest thing is it's really in a way kind of like putting together a game plan every day, you know, I mean, you want to be able to script the first 10 plays and, and, and be able to come out uh, with a cannon shot and have uh, people when they're getting off work, you know, saying, man, you know, I, this is awesome. I'm having fun now. Work sucked. But, you know, now I get to uh, sit in, you know, uh, an hour and a half of uh, Atlanta traffic, but at least I'm hanging out with uh, some cool guys. Absolutely. Um, can't say that I missed Atlanta traffic since moving up here to <laughs> Knoxville three years ago. Uh, Dan can't say that that has been something that I've missed yeah, about, it's, about home. Yeah. It's not, it's not a lot of people who, uh, uh, who, you know, once, uh, once they get out of it say, man, you know what? I, I miss sitting on the top end of the perimeter. I mean, mm-hmm. those were the, those were the days. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those that, you know, as well as anybody being from here that, uh, you gotta, you, you gotta be able to, uh, map out your days as, uh, oh, 75 South's going to be murder at this time, you know, or 85 North's going to be awful at this time. I can't go, I can't go to Gwinnett County right now. What am I doing? No, hundred percent. And now that it's been, uh, three years, I mean, I graduate from UT, uh, in like a month and it's just, I, I, whenever I go back home, it's like, I, I tell my wife, I'm not built for this anymore. Uh, it's just, I, I don't know how I did it for so long. Like when you're, and I was downtown for most of my twenties. So I avoided a lot of it just b- uh-huh. bouncing around that way, but I'm just not built for it. I, I you get yeah. the anxiety and I feel like it all just take over again. And I'm just like, I'm, I, I cannot, there's no way you could pay me all the money in the world. I don't think I could handle the traffic ever again. I think it, cause people here, they'll complain about Kingston Pike where it's like, they were 
they were sitting for an extra five minutes and they were like, yeah, yeah I wasn't really moving and I had to go a back way to work. And it's like, that's, that's not what traffic is. That's it's yeah. not, it's not what that is. It means you had a minor inconvenience. That's it's not that's traffic. A, There's no traffic in Knoxville. It's, it's a, it's a minor backup. Yes. Uh, I guess, you know, a little, little bit of a brake light parade, but you, you keep moving. So no, until yeah. you've actually had to yeah. pee in your car because, and not just like oh, yeah. your car in a bo- in a bottle because you look at the connector and you realize, oh, I'm not getting out of here. So decisions mm-hmm. have to be made. Then you've never For really sure. been stuck in in Atlanta. For sure. Thug. Man, well, the Astros they wanted your team, the Houston Astros. Um, they won the World Series this year, this past week. Um, my question to you though. As an up and down series, I know on social media and everything, you were getting a little nervous uh, as the World Series was going on with the Phillies. But now that it's happened, are you surprised that the Astros ended up winning the World Series? Um, not really, because as I had told, you know, it's funny. I have a, a, a text with uh, some friends of mine from college. And it's called the Astros venting text, which mm-hmm. is now my buddy is the moderator of it. He took it upon himself to change it to the dynasty venting text, which I appreciate. Um, but, you know, I think that the frustration I had had with the Braves that time, or the Braves, excuse me. Uh, been in Atlanta too long, them. see? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's already flipping go. over. For sure. But the, uh, the frustration I'd had with the Astros at times was it's just like, it, I, I shudder to quote Jimbo Fisher, but I remember years ago seeing highlights. I think it was from uh, the Showtime like reality show they had, mm. um, and and he had a line to his Florida State team where he said, "You stop you." There's not a lot of teams that can say that, and that's the way I felt about this Astros team because they had outstanding hitting when they hit. The pitching was always really pretty consistent, aside from. Game three of the World Series, game one of the NLDS or uh, the ALDS. Um, but I mean, that was there. The defense, for the most part, was there. I don't really remember them uh, throwing the ball around too much uh, or, or, you know, having any defensive miscues. So that was there. The frustration I had had at times with them was exactly what I had told my buddies as I said, if they hit, they're going to win this thing. There is nothing the Phillies can do if the Astros hit. And that was the frustration I had had with. It's, it's weird to get frustrated with Jose Altuve because the Astros are Jose Altuve. But, like, it was just like, damn, man. Like, come on. Like, let's go. You're on Alvarez, too. Who, you know, it's funny. I, I threw this out on Twitter today of sharing the uh, Jordan Alvarez home run. And I said that was the Jorge Soler moment from last hmm. year. Like, when, when Soler hit that home run off Luis Garcia, I think everybody in that stadium knew that's it. Mm-hmm. And when Jordan Alvarez hit that ball on top of the batter's eye, which nobody does at Minute Maid Park, and he hit that, uh, what was it? Um, a buddy of mine does radio in Houston, interviewed Lance McCullers, and he said that McCullers told him that he looked over to, I can't remember who he said was was in the dugout next to him, and he said, we just won the World Series. Hmm. Like moments like moments like that like are like, dude, that's a backbreaker. Like you, you have a guy who's been one of your best relievers in Alvarado come in, and he throws 99, which was not a bad pitch. If you go back and look at it, it was down in the zone. But Jordan Alvarez is Jordan Alvarez, and he just absolutely tattooed that ball. So, um, you know, I think if the Phillies had won, it would have been a massive upset. And I think that also, too, I think the Astros, as, a, as an organization and the players, even though they probably wouldn't have said it out loud, you have to start questioning yourself. You have to start wondering, like, 
damn, are we really meant to win this thing again? Um, I, I think that it could possibly be a turning moment for the organization in the positive where um, I remember John Smoltz years ago talking about how if they had won in 96, he feels like they would have won in 99. Mm. They would have won possibly in 2000. Why? And you would have been just because he feels like it would have been another, you know, just kind of we belong here. We can mm. win here. And he feels like losing to the Yankees kind of gave the Yankees that confidence of we belong here, we can win here, we've got our core, and we're going to go on the run. And the Yankees mm. did, and the Braves, obviously, we, we know how the, the 90s and early 2000s went. But I, I think that that's something that, that, that absolutely is real. I mean, that the you know the Buffalo Bills effect can kind of start to creep in a little bit of, yeah, we're here, but you know, do we believe we can win this? And, and I think they answered that uh, with this last series. What was part about this run for them? I'm sorry? What was the toughest part about this run for them? I, I mean, I think that probably, and, and look, you know, the thing is, it's it's got to be relative what I'm about to say because you don't have, like, outburst innings in the postseason. Like, you mm-hmm. get two or three runs, that's a hell of an inning. Um, you know, there's very few, you know, nine, you know, 10 to nine, nine, eight games, something like that. I mean, you know, game one and game three were kind of the anomalies. I mean, game one, um, you had just a couple of really good innings put together at the plate by the Phillies, which the hardest ball hit in those couple of innings was the Alec Bohm doubled down the left field line. But Mm -hmm. I mean, remember Castellanos, it was a pitch down low that he, got just enough barrel on to put some soft contact out in the left field. And then even uh, Real Muto's uh, game-tying two-run double was the same deal. Um, so that was probably the frustrate- The frustrating part was it was just like, even like in game five, for example, where it just seemed like they had so many opportunities to be able to ice that thing. Mm-hmm. But the good news is, is their pitching and their defense were consistent all the way through because – that's the crazy thing about that game five win is I was telling a buddy of mine, I said, Mancini doesn't make that play. They probably lose that game. They for sure probably have that game tied up. And if that place would have been going nuts, if Rio Muto had got on and something tells me the momentum would have had Bryce Harper hitting the two run homer. And that would have just been devastating had that happened. But sometimes, I mean, you know, that's the magic of October is you make those plays like Mancini did and like McCormick did. And all of a sudden, I think maybe at that moment, the Phillies were kind of like, the magic might be done. But it wasn't. They won. And that that is, it, it's just one of those things too that I think is interesting about this run. And I was talking to Fangos John Taylor about this, where a lot of folks were really upset that, um, the Phillies and the Padres were the final two in the NL where it's like, Oh, this is what happens when you expand. It's like the best Mm -hmm. teams got eliminated early. This is why you don't do this. And then at the end of the day, the best team all season long ended up winning the world series. And Mm -hmm. last year, the Braves were never the best team in baseball, but they still won the world series. It was a different kind of deal where I think the main thing that you want, if you're in major league baseball, if you're a fan is that there's variety where some years it might be the best team from beginning to end wins the world series. Some years it's the fifth best team. Some years it's the second best team. Maybe you want more of the number one more often than not, just to show that like, Hey, if you build the best team, then you'll be rewarded for it. But by and large, 
baseball is still like, hey, this is how this is going to go sometimes is that the Astros have been the best team and they have made it through. They bounced back um, from the World Series loss the previous year. They even had just so much weird stuff surrounding this team. I mean, we'll see what happens to Guriel this offseason and Bregman with his finger and Altuve's injury. But it's also like Dusty Baker and Clink just get another one-year extension just after winning the yeah. World Series where it's like they that signals to me that if they don't win the World Series, they're both out um, based on the one year. that I don't know. Do you get the same same sense there just because like one year? Are we really doing that after another World Series run and just winning the World Series? Is that what we're doing? Well, I, I'll start with Dusty first. Mm. I, I think that a big a big thing with that is, from what I had understood even before the World Series, talking with friends of mine that covered the team on a daily basis, mm. that if Dusty wanted back, he was back. Like that, mm. that was that was already determined. He would be back um, with Click. I think that it's just kind of some frustration mm. at times from from the, the sense that I get is that. Um, you know, it's kind of like, go for it, man. Like, you know, you get uh, Christian Vasquez, who was he was an outstanding addition at the deadline, and you get Mancini. And, you know, the funny thing is, Chase, is, you know, I brought up the Braves earlier, and maybe that Freudian slip was almost kind of uh, a happy coincidence because the Braves and the Astros are really pretty similarly built. Mm. And remember before that run to the World Series last year, the moves that Anthopolis made at the deadline, they didn't garner headlines. Like they weren't like, it was like, yeah, Jock Peterson. All right. A little bit of pop, but he strikes out a lot. And he was a huge contributor. You know, you, you add Adam Duvall, who was a huge contributor and he was an RBI leader in, uh, in last season. So I get that, but like Jorge Soler, Eddie Rosario, I mean, that those guys were just such huge contributors that I think it's also too, you know, maybe Jim Crane, you know, kind of realized it after the season of, Hey, look, I got a guy that can put together a pretty good roster. Is he necessarily the strongest in trades? Maybe not. But what do you necessarily need to add to this team? I mean, you're talking about a team who this offseason, you know, Jim Crane said his first order of priority is to add Justin Verlander. I would be very shocked and surprised if Verlander doesn't get three years and, I don't know, $95 million from – if I were the Dodgers, I'd pick up the phone and call them. They're going to hmm. have money to spend. I would do that. Um, if I were the Rangers, I mean, you need to be able to build that thing up. But at the same time, though, too, kind of, you know, look at the teams that are year in and year out really making a run for the World Series. Mm -hmm. The Astros, despite what people think, are an expertly built team of drafted, controlled and develop guys through their own system. Mm. I mean, case in point right now is them being able to tell one of the best shortstops in the league, yeah, we ain't going to give you a bunch of money because we got this kid behind you that's probably not as good as you are. Nobody's going to say that Jeremy Pena is better than Carlos Correa, but you still are able to say, yeah, we're going to go this route. We're going to see how it goes. I mean, the difference is with the Braves. They don't have that behind Dansby Swanson, so I think they are going to have to have a solution there if Swanson's not back. Um, but, I mean, that just shows you, though, like what these organizations who are going to be around for a while are doing is they're saying we will give big deals. We won't give massive deals because, I mean, that's the other thing is, too, is I think the Astros are pretty similar to the Braves in that mark where it's like we're not going to tie up $40 million a year in one guy and then try to, you know, slice up the, the rest of the payroll 
with, you know, a bunch of guys who are, are not making as much, whereas you want to kind of have your, your, your stars kind of in the same line right there. And, and that's what Alex Anthopoulos has been able to do. Um, luckily, you know, most of the core of the Astros is locked up for some time. I think the next real, um, the, the next real contract of consequence is going to be Altuve in like 24, but I would bet that they probably start working on that next year. So, you know, that's, that's the key is have your guys locked up for a while. And then, you know, maybe, you know, spend a lot up front to kind of, you know, be able to balance it out towards the end. Now that it came out that Wilson Contreras, that was almost a deal that get done before the deadline. Did now, like hindsight being twenty twenty, did that make sense? Would that have made sense, and would that have affected this run at all? Are you glad that that did not end up happening, or what? What do you make of that? Well, I mean, I, if you if you get a Wilson Contreras, you can't turn that down. But I think what was huge with Christian Vasquez was Dusty was not going to come off of Martin Maldonado being his starting catcher. Hmm. And I think that the thought was, and I believe it was in that same story where it was like Contreras probably would not have really been a huge fan, which look, he's a star starting catcher. Mm-hmm. And it, that's what you want to be. I, you know, I, I can't, you know, begrudge somebody for saying, Hey, I want to play every day. That doesn't make you a selfish guy. That makes you a competitor. You want to be out there playing and not to say that Christian Vasquez didn't want to, but I think he realized, and I think they were pretty honest with them up front of, Hey, look, you're going from being the everyday guy with the Red Sox to now getting a chance to go for a ring and being the guy who's not going to be the everyday guy. And he really took you know them to heart on that and said, okay, fine. And he accepted the culture that is in that clubhouse because despite what people will say about the Astros, I think they have proven over the last few years since the revelations of 2020 mm-hmm. that – it's a great clubhouse of guys that care deeply about each other. And it's a great culture in that room. And I think that it's kind of also understood as well that, Hey man, don't come in here and mess this thing up. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if maybe somebody got to Vasquez before and just said, Hey man, this is what we got here. And, you know, I understand you're being traded here, but you know, if, if Dusty's asking you to take a different role, take a different role and he didn't seem to mind it. Um, and, and he fit the role incredibly well, uh, with the struggles at the DH, I would have liked to have seen more of him. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it all worked out in the end, but, uh, no, I mean, that, that was huge because, you know, while you do give up a lot offensively with Maldonado, what he does with that pitching staff is, is unreal. Every single guy on that staff sings his praises about how he calls the game, how he handles the pitching staff, I mean, you've even seen it as well that good luck trying to run on him. Uh, you, you you don't steal very many bases on this guy. Um, so, you know, I think that that would have been something that would have been really tough to take out of the lineup on a daily basis. Last thing, what will you remember most about this run, Dan? What will stand out the most to you years from now? Resilience. Hmm. Resilience. I, I, I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, in 17, they outslugged everyone. Now, I understand what 17 comes with. I, trust me. I, I understand uh, what the, uh, the the perception is of that title. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, game one of the ALDS. And you get them coming back, clawing back, and then that massive three-run homer, which, by the way, I still contend if the Astros don't get that from Jordan Alvarez and they lose that game one, I don't know if they win that series. 
because remember game two was tightly contested game three was very tightly contested in 18 innings so yeah they swept the mariners but seattle still i think proved to them and saying and saying hey we're not afraid of you and that's dangerous in october in these short series so you're able to do that the yankees i think for most of the season the funniest thing is chase is the people who were telling me that the Yankees were not good were Yankee fans. Brandon Joseph, Keith Ippolito, um, one of our sales guys, Craig. I mean, they seriously would almost on a daily basis say, I don't know how we're here. We're not good. You guys are going to sweep us. And I'm like, come on, man. You know, you guys have put together some just amazing ninth innings this year, all that kind of stuff. That can translate in October. But the Astros were able to be the better team. And, you know, the Yankees – I mean, if you don't have Aaron Judge going, you ain't going to have much going, and, and they didn't. And uh, the Astros were able to win that. And then I think the last part was obviously against the Phillies because you had a team that I'm sure probably to a man reminded the Astros a lot of that last year's Braves team, and it reminded me of them too. And when they won that first game, that's why I was like, I, I just I can't believe this is going to happen again. But then the resilience bounced back in game two. Bounce back in game four to throw that combined no-hitter. Outstanding defense late in game five. And then in game six, to have Schwarber hit that home run. And the Astros have not been good the last few years at home in the World Series. So I think that maybe with that Schwarber home run, people start thinking, damn it, here it goes again. And you get the three-run homer. You get the insurance run from, from Christian Vasquez. So... I think that's the thing. I, I think that this was one that was incredibly well-earned, and this was an incredibly resilient group that was able to do this. I love it. Uh, congrats again, Dan. On uh, It's been a great uh, last couple of days for you. LSU beating been. Alabama, Houston winning uh, the World Series. It's uh, Everything's coming up uh, Dan Matthews right now. It, it is, man. And my favorite holiday of the year is in two weeks. I mean, who doesn't like uh, you know, as much food as possible and football on, on a uh, Thanksgiving Thursday. So, you know, favorite holiday right over Halloween yeah, and Christmas. All yeah. kind of, okay. Yeah. No, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, you know, Chris, for Christmas now, it's always, you know, mom and dad will ask, Hey, what do you want? I'm like, mm. I don't really need anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, I appreciate it, but, uh, no, you know, Thanksgiving's Thanksgiving's awesome, you know, just mm. in terms of the, uh, being fat and happy and, and watching mm-hmm. some football. So no, it's, it's awesome. Interesting. I I'm a big October is tier one. Uh, October. Okay. I'm. It, you're not gonna like this, Dan, because November first is when I put on the Christmas tree. So like it's okay. going in the other room. Oh, like we're no we, tra- we transition to Christmas. Yeah. Like we're we're oh, moving no. past Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving yeah. and that is just I don't know. Black Friday gotcha. is not my deal. Maybe that was working no. in a mall when I was in high school. Have ah. just horror stories of uh, just working that. Uh, shout out to all those good folks who can still oh, yeah. put up with that at any point. Like that's. Everyone should do that once in their life to understand just what it's like and how unimportant all of that is. Uh, yeah. You... It's no, a... sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, it's I... it's okay. a wild, wild thing working in a mall on Black Friday. I would not wish that on anybody, but I also think it's like one of those good things everybody should do once, and you'll be like, "Wow, this is uh, not that serious, and we should never do." This was all a mistake. Uh, Black Friday. Yeah was a mistake uh dan what can the good folks check out from you uh across the podcast uh with uh chuck and Turnoff? what uh, can the good folks look out from you uh all across the board this week yeah so you know obviously 11 to 1 every single day the southern sports today app you can listen to the chuck oliver show college football year round 
I guarantee you we will be, uh, you know, uh, recapping the college football playoff rankings, the most recent ones that came out. Uh, as you mentioned, Tennessee uh, at number five, so still very much within striking distance. Uh, still got LSU there as well. The memes are starting to come out of, hey, they did it with two losses years ago. Maybe they'll do it again. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but um, I think you uh, have we'll to win out. I think the way for oh, LSU to get in, I think you oh, have to win out. 100%. Yeah. 100%. 100%. That's got to happen, and you got to pull off a huge win uh, in Atlanta in order mm -hmm. for that to happen. So, uh, no, I mean, there's that. Um, but then also, too, just getting for this weekend's game, uh, getting ready for this weekend's games, uh, Southern Beat. Uh, episode 61 going to drop on Thursday, so we'll have that for you, uh, getting you ready for the weekend's action. And then, of course, Chuck and Chernoff, 2 to 6 every day uh, on the fan, 680, 93.7 FM, the fan app. Don't forget about that fan app. It's it's incredibly valuable. There you go. Dan, thank you so much for making the time this evening. I greatly appreciate it. We'll have to check back in again soon. Oh, for sure, Chase, man. Always great catching up with you, buddy. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.